Okay, so welcome to the podcast. Just a wee quick intro before we get into it. Uh, me and Darren got talking for quite a while, uh, as is the want of two-hour man. And we basically, I was attempting doing like half an hour, 40 minutes, I ended up doing, it was near two hours, but I added it all down to to to, to less than that. But um, I'm going to split it into two podcasts. So, uh, so this is the first of them. So Darren... To give him his introduction, a fantastic fella. He's a stand-up comedian. He's also had a career as a Rudy and a drummer. Uh, he's he's gigged internationally, etc., etc. You'll get to hear all this in the in the podcast, and uh, he's he's also the host of his own podcast as well. And he's a member of the East Belfast GAA. We talk about all that and much more. We talk about uh, we do a little bit about politics. We don't go too much into politics, although we are sort of the two of us are basically on the same page there's not a lot there's not a lot that separates us with our opinions in those matters and uh we talk about soccer we talk about yeah, belfast and politics and northern ireland all that so here we go uh welcome to the Andy that's in the bonneville's podcast with the mighty darn matthews I was going to say, don't worry about it, because like you and I would love to remember phone calls. Not everything was a fucking video call, so it's okay. Exactly, exactly. No, it's all good. Okay, yeah. so, um, so, big intro, blah, 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 blah. And uh, so, Darren, first question I want to ask, it's, I'm going to go through your sort of, if you don't mind, I'm going, sort of going to go through your career chronologically. And um, <laughs> the... The first thing I want to ask you about is roadie life and how that led to morphing into being a drummer in one of the busiest bands in the world. For those of people that don't know, uh, Darren played drums in a band called the Dangerfields. And back in and the they, day, yeah, I um, didn't, I didn't play drums in the Dangerfields. I was. The oh, roadie. you didn't. Oh, I thought you played drums in the Dangerfields. No, no, oh, no, no. I worked in the years. Oh, you were a roadie in the day. So, so, ex- yeah. so explain that to me. Explain that to me. Sorry, I got my... Explain my, the, my, my, my. You're okay. No, explain the thing. Because um, Andrew Johnson is the only actual member of the Dangerfields that never changes. It's it's, kind of, it's his wee band, yeah. you know? Yes, that's right. So, I, um, I completely screwed that up. Sorry. First question. Off okay. that flyer. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> basically, I was running gigs in the Newry and Warren Point area. I'm from Bestbrook and Armagh. So we were running shows. And that's how I met the boys. Because I, um, I played in the band... And we we played one night in Belfast with the Dangerfields and I just got friendly with Andy. And then when I was sort of about 20, 21, I was just kind of working a, a very boring retail job in Newry. Uh, actually, I can say their name because they've actually gone bust. I was working for JJB Sports. Oh, yeah. And Andy phoned me and asked me, did I want to go on tour? And I was like, well, what do you mean? Where, where are you going to? And the first tour I did with the boys was... I think I can't remember. I did two made two kind of big tours with the boys. Uh, so one of them was the Stiff Little Fingers 30th anniversary tour around the UK. What year was this? This was so 2000 and what would be 2006, 2007. So they formed yeah. in 76. Yeah, that was their, their 30th anniversary tour. So that was me. Now, here's the difference of the Rudy Likes thing because I, I did that and traveled around all we did all the UK. So that was like Glasgow Barrowlands. Mm. Manchester Academy, you know, some really, really lovely gigs and like really proper, nice venues. 
Yeah. So then the next time out, he says to me, do you want to go on tour? And I was like, yeah, no problem. Where are we going? He was like, we're going to jump in the van and we're going to do Europe. Yeah. And I was like, absolutely down for that. Thinking, oh, this is going to be like Glasgow Barrowlands, Manchester Academy. But it was the proper punk circuit in Europe. So bars, clubs, uh, underground venues, squats, the whole deal, man. And it was yeah. uh, it was a life experience as a, as a young man. Playing for bucket proper, money. Playing for bucket money and selling T-shirts. So I, my job was... Uh, Rodian was basically an extra pair of hands setting everything up, uh, selling t-shirts. Yeah. Basically, what happens is, as I'm sure you know, whenever you're touring as a, as a, a small team, you're just like, right, we're going to go play the gig now. And then your first thought is, is that somebody going to nick the t-shirts? You know, that kind yeah. of thing. So yeah. you always yeah. need that wee extra guy. So yeah. I was the wee extra guy. So I could oh, okay. run up and set up our, when the boys be playing a multi-band bills. So you have to, you're doing the swap overs as well and the turnovers. Mm. And it kind of got me a wee bit. I had it sort of a, a bit of an interest in um weirdly weirdly like I, I can't play the guitar but i can fix one you know that kind of way uh-huh like i can i can tune set uh do all the bits and bobs for guitars i ended up uh we did a tour with the dwarves the band from yeah the States, who, we, who you we, played with we played with them last year was it last fucking yeah year? maybe it was a year uh, before Go on. And my job in the UK tour with the Dwarves was, so I would finish setting up with the Dangerfields and then I was the guitar tech for He Who Cannot Be Named, who's the weekend, the band that wears the, the mask and basically plays in either nothing or a thong. Mm-hmm. So I was his guitar tech. Uh, lovely man, by the way. Absolute psychopath mm-hmm. on stage. Complete gentleman off. So I was getting, I think I got a tenner a day off those boys. So because I was working with the Dangerfields just for traveling around and hanging out with my mates and then getting paid a tenner a day by the Dwarves, I probably came home with more money than the danger fills from that tour. <laughs> I remember, I remember following the adventures of the danger fields on fast food. Uh, That's the, right. Yeah. The message board and w- w- were you, I don't know if, if it, was, it probably was uh, a tour that you were on, but it was just, it was just, uh, it was something else to, 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 to do you understand, you know, Andrew, or the danger, I don't know if, I don't know what, what, what if you were the same in, in this regard, that the danger fields never seem to take a night off. You see, the, no, it was like, sure. You might as well, you might as well do as many gigs as you can, even if it's, you know, like the quiet Monday might pay for the petrol to get you to the, the busy Saturday. Exactly. Exactly. And that, that's also with, with just a, inject my own thing into it with the Bonnevilles. We do the same. We, we we had a booking agent who always give, he, he sort of said, I always give my bands Monday off. It's because it's hard to book a gig on a Monday. So yeah. that sort of makes sense. You know, you give a band, but me and Chris were like, no, we don't want a Monday off. So we would go on trend. So he would book the tour. It'd be nice rooms, nice venues. And then we would be running around trying to organize a back room in a pub somewhere just to, as you say, get diesel money for the next day. And this yeah. pissed, this big time agent, we had to piss them off. <laughs> he was on you. He, we felt, he felt like we were undermining them and shit. But, you know, we're like, listen, mate, we're out here trying to make money. What, but what's mad is as well is you have to take the chance on every single gig because there was nights in that tour where you would play to, say, 150 people and sell two T-shirts. And then another night you might play some squat with 10 people in it and you would every 10 person would buy a fucking T-shirt. Yeah. And that I think that gets the I, van to the next show. I think we've had I think we've said this before, but but often often um 
it's those little past the bucket round shows where you actually make more money than your a f- that would be a, a fee. So if you do get a gig on a Monday night or a Tuesday night because you want it, because you want to f- fill your your calendar, because just as you said, yeah. I mean, if you think about it, if you're not gigging on a Monday night, you've still got to drive to the gig the next day. You still have to eat maybe two meals, still have to pay for that. I mean, albeit as frugal as it's going to be, but it's still going to have to be paid for and everything else that goes in between, and it all adds up. So if you turn around and get a little gig on a Monday night, and you say, well, give us 400 quid or 300 quid or 200 quid, whatever it may be, and the guy goes, no, but we'll pass the bucket round. You go, well, frigate, we'll take it. Because even if you got 50 quid, it's going to cover your expenses. But you end up getting 500 quid and selling a load yep. of T-shirts. You know? It's it's the, it's gambling, isn't it? I mean, it's like going yeah. down the bookies, and yeah. who's an outside chance here making a few pounds off it? Oh, geez, but it's the... <laughs> so, I said, me, me, me and my mate Richie McGee recently um, to, to just inject a bit more interest into life which is exceedingly boring these days um, we got the, I got one of them little bat 365 apps oh dear I know and I put 50 quid into the account so me and Richie can back do a bit of betting on the football when it's on like, I'm, I'm talking like five pound accumulators four teams to win sort of thing you know non, I, I know frig all about betting and it doesn't interest me beyond I really don't care. And Richie's the football guy, but every bet he's picked has lost. And every bet <laughs> I every every bet I picked has won. And I don't know as enough about as much about football as him by a long, long way. And then the other yeah. night he sent me four bets. He says, put these on, these are four away winners. We're go- this is a good bet. And I didn't get a chance to put it on and every one of them won. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I've got great ones off that um, the only time I think I ever gambled was when I was working I, I worked as a labourer on a building site with my, my brother he's a, yeah. a bricklayer and uh, whenever like Cheltenham was on the boys are all you know they're all got their, their betting apps and they're all betting all the time and they were like oh, you know lads getting tips and stuff and a very funny one where um, the boys picked a load of horses and I think I picked one horse and it lost and then one of the boys was like um, oh, I got a t- tip for a horse and the lads, some of the lads were putting major money in this thing like the week's wages and all oh, and nice. I uh, I went to get something so I forgot to put the bet on and I went to get something down in the yard and when I came back up one of the boys was like did you put that that bet on that horse and I says oh shit no I forgot all about it and one of the boys was like good the fucking thing's still running <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was going to go the other way there <laughs> no 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 they were uh, this thing I, I think it the, the horse it might still be running at this point no one finished fucking Devon or something but I am um, the only bet I did put on was where I kind of and I, I felt kind of weird doing it because I've never I've never really gambled apart from years ago in my house your man would give you 50p for the Grand National and you literally just went I like his jersey and yeah. that's your horse yeah. you know yeah 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 so, uh, <laughs> I'm the same it's, it's never been anything that's ever took my interest at all I thank God for it because I do have I do have a fucking pathetically weak personality and I could end up <laughs> being even more of a loser than I am now. <laughs> yeah, well, look, it's, uh, it, it's an exp- it looks like it's expensive to practice. You know what I mean? Ah, yeah, <laughs> so, exactly, exactly. Uh, I don't know exactly. But basically, the, the, next one I, the next one I picked was I, I picked, uh, I think I picked three horses because it was the same jockey. And I was like, oh, I recognize that guy's name from TV. It was uh, basically, I think it was Ruby Walsh. It was just, I was like, um, uh, yeah, all three of his horses will win today. Now, I, I didn't realize that meant that he was riding the horses. I thought he owned the horses. So he was actually on the fucking horse himself and won three races in the day. 
So I came out of it like a hundred quid, then I was like, right, oh, that's it's... me retired from gambling. I, I stopped uh, right yeah, there. Yeah, I, have, I, I, I won't tell you, but I have a couple. Of, I went to the casino once with a with a, a cousin of mine. God rest him, he's dead. And he liked to gamble. And this was an early man again. I was a builder. I was a laborer over there. He was a plasterer. And uh, I went in. I think, I think I maybe went in with something like twenty or thirty quid. It's going into a casino, and it was a big, grand, fancy thing. Um, you know, that's nothing. So I'm playing the 50p roulettes, but I end up winning 70 or 80 quid or something like this after three or four hours of gambling and a load of beers. I come out with about 50 pounds in my pockets. I'm over the friggin' moon. Yeah. But he goes in with his week's wages. He's a plasterer in the Isle of Man in the 90s. So he's making about 1500 pounds a week. He goes yeah. in with his week's wages in his pocket, loses the lot. Whole lot Ugh. on the big on the big tables, the big gambling, and I was like, Ugh, I felt I he was asking me for a line of money to buy his lunch on Monday, and I was, I, I felt like throwing up in my mouth for him, and it didn't seem yeah. to take a fizz off him, you know what I mean? But uh, but I've, here, so gigging life, um, how, how long did you do that for? How long did you gig and roadie and all that? I well, I mean, I properly full time from about the age of 19 to about the age of 25 i ran shows that's what i did Brilliant. i had i had various jobs in between just to kind of keep me bumped up but a lot yeah. of them were part-time just i was running the shows in the inf which is a venue in warren point so i'm from I, best I, I, warren points about 15 minutes i remember that venue from back in the day yeah yeah great rock club um bands used to i would have put quite a lot of bands on so at the time you would have been seeing bands like and so you watch watching from afar, fighting wire, Lafaro. I would post put all those guys on. So that was really nice to have those bands in. And also to put something in a, in a kind of regional town. I, I also have this idea, even now with the comedy club that yeah. I run in Uri, whenever we're able to have fucking comedy clubs, is that um, I don't think you're allowed to complain about where you're from if you don't try and make it a wee bit better. Very something good. similar to what you guys are doing, what your idea was with the Black Cat Club. I thought that Absolutely. was a fucking yeah. great idea too bring entertainment to the regional kind of thing, which probably yeah. hasn't been something that's been tried properly since like the show band era when everybody yeah. played everywhere. So it'd be nice to bring well, that there's, back. There, there's been a massive centralization of everything from entertainment to labor to, you know, everything just goes sort of, everything just get, it, it gets sucked to the cities, to the big cities and then the small towns get left behind. And there's no reason for it. I mean, especially if there's people like you and me and other folk that are, connected for a start and know what people might like and are prepared to get out there and the, that's the other thing as well because we're out there in the sticks let's call it that for want of a better word we don't have we don't have the same the same expenses as the cities and that's to our benefit so we don't and because like for, i'm thinking about here for me and lurgan when we were thinking about this we were going, there's the room. We can charge this. You do the math and you go, there's this amount of money going to be left over. And we go, are we going to sell these tickets? And you go, we only need to sell 100 tickets in a town of 70,000 people. Of course we're going to sell them. <laughs> it's it's a no-brainer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. There's enough people for the audience. I mean, uh, the, basically when I was running the INF, the guy who started running those shows was a good friend of mine, um, Tommy Mulligan. Tommy lives in New Zealand now, but he was the lead singer in my my punk band when we were teenagers. I played in the, I played drums in a band called Too Fat for Porn. Yeah, <laughs> and 
Tommy was the singer. So he we basically started kind of his dad was a member of the INF and he was like, we, we could play in there. And it was probably of the old, the old punk rock story that the reason we had to put on our own shows was that we probably weren't good enough for anyone else to book us. But yeah, when we did do a show, we brought down a couple of our mates bands. Yeah. We'd hit line and we'd absolutely yeah. ram the place because it was, yeah. there was nothing to do. And if you didn't want to go to Newry to go to the nightclubs, which a lot of yeah. people didn't want to do. I mean, this was rock music was probably a lot more popular then as well. So you had the little, uh, the little kids yeah. with the long hair that wanted somewhere to go. And I, yeah didn't have to go to nightclubs and stuff. It was great. And then yeah. I just took on running it because somebody had to, you know what I mean? And you create, you, create a, you create a scene, you create a scene around the whole thing. And I did the same here. And there was a few boys did the same here around the same era. And even earlier, back in the nineties as well. Well, maybe, maybe not for me back in the nineties, but certainly in the, in the early two thousands, it was the same thing in Lurgan. I was putting on clubs or club nights in the town here. And there was a few other boys doing it in a bar called the Keeley house. And I played uh, the Keeley house. I'm sure you did. And um, you end up creating a scene. And you don't realize what you're doing at the time. It's only when it's gone, people go, oh, I remember back when you used about that. I, I remember going there when I was 17, a bottle of Buckfast out in the QR park and sneaking my way into the gigs you were putting on. And it, it become this formative thing of people's lives. You don't realize, you don't even realize it's happening. It's great. I, I, like I'm 35. I'm still good friends with a lot of those people to this day. You know what I mean? Yeah. People are just like, oh, fuck, I miss all that. Uh, but the annoying thing was whenever I emigrated then, when I emigrated to Australia, no one took it on. Everyone just accepted it was over. And I was like, what are you, what are you doing? Somebody go do it. You know what I mean? Aye. Aye so that's, that was... That's, that's pretty poor. Aye, but that's, that's often the way of it. You, you do, you do. It's, it's often the way of it. You know, you don't realise. I don't want to blow smoke up anyone's hole, including my own. But it does take, it does take someone like you or me or people like us to go out there and have an idea and go right let's go and do this we can do this this is doable and you will get people telling you you can't do it it's uh, here in Lurgan and Newry why why do you think this is going to work here and you're like why would it not it doesn't make any sense and you that that was the thing that I I same as yourself I kind of got disappointed when I stopped doing it exactly as you said no one else took it on no one else started doing it I said I don't understand this this doesn't make sense to me but that's just the way it went but here, mad as well because well, also you're like, well, I, look, I've already put the fucking money and the the infrastructures there. Just just do what I'm doing. Go ahead. Yeah, just book a fucking band. It'll work for you. And and, yeah, and you know much. you know you know yourself. At the end of the day, booking bands, it's not really difficult. It's not that hard. It could, some people can be arseholes, but they're very few and far between. And this idea of the the, the rock star, fucking drama queen, it doesn't exist. I never I've never met that guy, and and. The, Met very few of them anyway. Literally count them on one hand, and the thing that about them, you never meet them again because no one ever books them again. You know Agreed. I mean? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're gone. Their reputation fucking precedes them, and off you go, yeah. son. You know that's that's the whole idea. You know that this this idea that you get with with the rock star. You know the prince or the you know the, this big superstar going on. Hey, well, prince became prince. He didn't start out as prince. He didn't rock up as fucking seventeen year old and go, "I'm Prince. I want all these women and all this stuff." He developed that persona, and it was only a persona. But then you get these idiots to take that persona on, think it's a real thing, <laughs> and then rock up to your little hundred and fifty capacity venue, thinking that they're the fucking dog's balls, and get short shrift, yeah. as they say. <laughs> <laughs> Here, right. Um, so you emigrated to Australia. How long were you down there? 
I have spent a total of, I think, about seven years abroad. So I did three in Australia, two in Canada, one in New Zealand, and then various points in between with my backpack on and doing comedy. Yeah. Yeah. So So it's good, man. uh, so so what it was it was it it was after the gig life you 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 stepped into the stand up world. Yeah, I was doing stand up for about a year, which was actually at the uh, the behest of Andy Johnson again from the Dangerfields because he was remember, like, "I'm going to go do this open I mic. Rem- do you want to give remember, it a go?" I remember him doing that. Yeah, I was very impressed with that. Uh, yeah, Andy suggested. <clears throat> he was like, "You should give it a go." I think he was, you know, he's trying to get a few mates. He's like, That's all good. I'm do it, you know, because he was doing. He was doing it and he was saying, look, you, like you've been on stage before. And I was like, yeah, I've been hiding behind a drum kit. And the only time I was ever talking was to basically fill time, which was <clears throat> that kind of Billy Connolly thing where you start off as a musician. But of course, playing in a band, somebody fucking breaks a string, drops a guitar, spills a pint yeah. over the ramp, and then I'm filling time. Yeah. So I would sing backing vocals. And then if something went wrong, I was like, fuck, so you're talking. But it's just general chat. So then he was like, you should give it a go. So that's how I ended up starting off. I did my first gig. Uh, about 11 years ago in the We're, pavilion bar in Belfast. Yeah. Very good. And mm. how, how long did you, how long was your first set? My first set was seven minutes. So, uh, battery really? healthy meatloaf, basically. Yeah. Seven minutes. Mm-hmm. That's quite, that's quite, that's quite a, for, for, uh, a virgin on stage, seven minutes of stand up, isn't it? Yeah. Ter- oh, well, so seven minutes is battered healthy meatloaf for an entire set by a punk band. So I, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was up there for seven minutes. And it fucking, it fucking felt like a lot longer than seven minutes. But I, it. I was doing go? comedy for a year. It, it actually went okay. The the, yeah. re- the video recording exists somewhere. Wow. Um, just a bit of lacking a bit of stagecraft. One of the first things I did was insulted the MC, the guy who brought me on, out of sheer panic. Because in my head yeah. it was like when you're joking around with your mates and somebody's like, "I'll go yeah. get a pint." You're like, you know, it's. It, that was in my idea. I didn't understand the stagecraft, how comedy works, you know, joke structure. Well, joke structure, I read up a bit about it, So that helped me where I could actually write uh, a joke. Right. And that became turned into a long form storytelling as I did comedy for longer. But uh, yeah, I was doing it for about a year and then I moved to Australia and I actually ended up doing loads of gigs over there because, you know, as, as somebody put it to me, even if your jokes aren't funny, you sound funny. So that was <laughs> good. Yeah. So was there any danger of you becoming Jim Owen before Jim Owen? No, no, he was well established by the time I got to Australia. Oh, is that right? Okay, all right. <clears throat> yeah, Jim, Jim was famous in Australia long before anybody fucking knew his name over here, so... Oh, that's right, and, I remember, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I do what, I met him in Perth, lovely man. So he's, uh, sure. he's, he's, sure he he's no rock star at him like either. No, he seems adorable. Um, <laughs> so, so you did, did you, was it just a, was it a, a, a backpacker's life? doing gigs, working in bars, doing this, doing that, or was it just gigs? It was uh, all of the above. I was all very lucky, when I, especially when I lived in Perth. I had a very understanding boss. I worked for a guy from Wexford called Paul North. I worked in JB O'Reilly's, which was the biggest seller of Guinness in Australia for seven years in a row. So you were just, I, I fucking pour a pint of Guinness with my eyes closed. Um, Paul was very understanding. And I said, if I went, I have a gig this Friday night. So obviously working at a pub the weekend's the big one. I would say, can I do Friday day and I'll do Saturday night and Sunday night? And he was like, yeah, no problem. So I just swapped. I would, I would give them enough notice of when I couldn't work. And they were very understanding. And any time I had a show, they would give me that. Or they would let me work a day shift and then I would go in the evening to do my yeah. shows and then I'd make more money. It's brilliant. It seems, it seems like such a small thing, a small thing for an employer to do. But um, 
it's a lot of employers can be complete fucking dicks and they, they, they don't have a they, they don't have an ounce of patreon about them you know what i mean they just they just uh they won't let people go and do these things but that's brilliant so you did that no. for like seven years uh yeah just kind of bouncing around i lived in and, different countries and then what brought you home brought me home was uh, i forgot to marry somebody for a visa so uh <laughs> <I come> <laughs> <back>. <laughs> very good very good no, i am um, yeah. do, do you know what i i I'm not sure what brought me home. There's there there's some sort of pull to this place. I've I've met mm. I've met Irishmen and women around the world that have been gone for years and have this like a near sadness or a guilt for not being here. I don't know. I it's so hard to explain. It might be a psychological condition. We should probably do a bit of research on this. Yeah. Um no, it's weird. There maybe we romanticize home, you know. I'm just like yeah, it's uh, people be like, "Oh, I really miss Ireland." And I was just like, "Well, I was there in the eighties and nineties. It wasn't fucking great." <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was, I was exactly the same. I fucking, I remember. I'm not joking. I'm not. No word of an exaggeration. I literally remember when when, when you get when you get off the plane. So you get off the plane in Belfast, jump on the train, get the train to Lurgan. The first indication of getting to Lurgan is you pass what it's now getting demolished and being rebuilt. What's you sort of. It, it looms at you coming out through the trees on your right hand side. Well, depending on what side of the train you're sitting on, but there it is, St. Michael's School, just as you're coming into Lurgan from Belfast. And it's the first thing that you go, right, I'm in Lurgan, I'm in the boundary of what is Lurgan. And I, and I was about 17 years of age, maybe 18, and I actually involuntarily started crying on the train because I hated this place so much. And yeah. yet here I am living my best life, and I absolutely adore the place. I mean, I've got a beautiful wife, beautiful kids, and all the rest of it. But which obviously is is my life. But th- th- to contrast that from exactly what you said, I remember what this place was like. It was no, there was nothing to do but try not to be murdered and try not to murder someone, and you know, and all the stuff that went with it. And that th- that that was life. There was no clubs. There was no pubs. There was no gigs. There wasn't the idea of being a stand-up comedian was as you may as well said i'm going to be the first party on the moon it just didn't it didn't exist there's no version of it well even then i mean the stand-up scene in belfast didn't get really get a proper kick in the arse until i mean we had like colin murphy and jake O'Kane and the two or three guys you see on on there and you had the empire but the The empire Empire, um the empire would have uh, flown a lot of acts in so they would be tied in with like a booking agency and they would fly acts in from england and scotland um so there was very little really weirdly there was seemed to be very little of the local guy who you know can i just get up and do that a few guys did it where they just went and said to the bot you know the jackie hamilton the books can i have a go guys like paddy mcgahey great great comedians is there who would have done that but then i didn't get started a guy called uh graham watson started running the pavilion which was an open mic comedy night yeah and that was where i started and that was where andy brought me to for the first gig and that was where a lot of guys did their first shows because it was actually a platform where they basically went, look, we kind of don't know what we're doing, but this is the platform yeah. for it. And but I, that's, But that's important. That's important yeah. with all the arts, Darren. <clears throat> that, 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 that it's, it's okay. To, you don't arrive fully formed, but if you're not doing it, you're never going to get there. It's never going to fucking yeah. happen, ever. Yeah, I think with that, it's you have to... Um, you do have to do it, and you have to do the... As you say, the, the small rooms and the clubs and the, yep. can you, can, if you can perform to an audience of 10 people, performing to an audience of a thousand people is easy, you know, that mm. kind of thing. You're just Aye. like, Jesus, can we do this? So it's like, yeah. 
the, the smaller numbers is a, a kick in the arse to push yourself on. You can't be lazy when you're right. This is so it. What, so what do you think of those <clears throat> those fledging fledgling Desno's fledgling experiences? And I'm assuming not too many people actually doing the thing to compared to today where Northern Ireland is, I mean the comedy scene in Northern Ireland is absolutely bouncing right now yeah we have I mean there's the boys some of the boys are doing waterfronts Ulster Halls um, SSC arenas because they've, arena, they've been yeah. plugging away for 10 years and they're just building 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 yeah that's but, great but, but 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 outside of Northern Ireland can't get arrested yeah, well, I mean, here we we've <laughs> this is this goes through everything where we are. Uh, I don't know. Would you say ignored? Like whenever I was, yeah. Whenever I was away um, doing shows, I used to I used to open. The only thing that people know about Northern Ireland was I would have to be like, right, I'll touch on this, but just so then they familiarise themselves. But I'm not going to talk about it because obviously when you're abroad, I'm, I mean, I, I did gigs in like fucking Singapore and Malaysia and stuff. You can't what who who knows what the troubles is, but they do yeah. know that something happened here. So I used to introduce yeah. myself and say, hi guys, my name is Darren Matthews. I'm a, I'm a comedian from Ireland. But if you're wondering why I sound slightly more threatening, I'm actually from Northern Ireland. And then they would go, oh, that's the one thing we know. So that joke yeah. always worked. No matter where you are in the world, people are like, oh yeah. yeah you yeah. guys are on the news. Yeah, so. <laughs> Very good. So that's, that's the idea of where you have to, it's harder because even when I was abroad some places, I would be like, I'm from Ireland. And they're like, you don't sound like you're from Ireland. And you're like, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I remember remember talking with Mickey Bartlett about um, when when him and Geddes were doing some shows over in uh, over in England, I guess, and he they didn't have a high opinion of a lot of the stand ups coming on because they were they kind of felt that those guys were always angling for some sort of BBC contract. Whereas, and I thought this was brilliant and as punk as fuck, if I might add, they're from Northern Ireland and there was no version of this for them. There was no BBC contract potential or yeah. otherwise. It wasn't going to happen. So they were able to go out on the stage and kill it and be as rude as they wanted, as coarse as they wanted, as cursy and sweary as they wanted to be. And they weren't worried about the talent scout in the corner who wasn't going to give them anything anyway. Yeah, which is really punk. There's a I like see I like that as well. I I had um there's another comedian who lives in London called John Maher, and I had him on my podcast, and I said to John, "Who's the best comedian you've seen that's never getting on TV?" And he was like, "Oh, I know loads of them, because uh, it's guys that aren't trying, but yeah. they're fucking brilliant." And I've given hey. loads of those guys. Yeah, without a doubt, absolutely. And there's, there's and that and it, just to bring that back into the music thing. For me, which is obviously my comfort zone, um, I'm I'm often reminded, and I, I hate it whenever people say, "Oh, there's no good music anymore," and people say it all the time. Every generation says that. that I know, right? And uh, and I am looking at them, and, and they'll say it to me, and then they'll go, "Oh, well, except for you, <laughs> you know." And I said, "No, yeah, I'm sorry, you're wrong. You, you, what happens? What's happened is you've stopped looking." You got comfortable listening to the same bands that you grew up with and you think that there's nothing else outside of that experience because that experience is some psychological trap for you because you equate it to your youth and your happiness and your your freedom and your and all when you were young and free and had no no responsibilities 
and now you're incapable of looking beyond that. But the reality is music's as good as ever it was. And that's the yeah. truth. That's the truth. It really is. I think what's mad when people say that about no good music, you're like, it's literally on your phone. If I wanted to take a chance on a band when I was younger, it was £12. I had to go to fucking HMV or go to my... Being being a dirty socialist and a punk rocker, I went to the independent record shop, which was more expensive. Of course. Which, as as the big brands were trying to fucking bury them, we used to have a brilliant, <clears throat> a fantastic CD shop in Uri called CD Times, which was run by a guy called Paul. Mm. And he was great. Like he, um, <clears throat> Paul was real punk rocker as well. He used to have a great section that was three for £21. So you would find mm. you like a classic albums in there. All new releases were a tenner, I think. And then mm. if you wanted a back catalog, it was £15. Real easy pricing scheme if you ordered something mm. in. I need a great reel of t-shirts, all black t-shirts. So you had to flick through every t-shirt to see what band was on it. <laughs> <laughs> and the place always stank of weed as well, which is really funny. So a proper record shop. <laughs> and I was just thinking now with the resurgence of vinyl, I wish Paul was still in business because he'd be making a fucking killing now from the people that went to his shop. Absolutely. And that's a little thing. I, I have a daughter here. I have two daughters here, 16 and uh, 19. And um, the 16-year-old, I, I spoke to her last year about it, and I was thinking of opening a little record shop in Lurgan. But, mm-hmm. I mean, tiny. I mean, it's going to be the size of a shed. It's literally going to be the size of a shed, and the overhead's going to have to be zero. And she wants to run it. And I've got an, I know enough people that run record shops that can give me the advice that I need. But it's just to have, it's a hobby business. It's just to have records being sold in Lurgan. The whole re- vinyl resurgence to me is, I, like yourself, never stopped buying vinyl. It was always my format of choice. Um, This vinyl resurgence has come through. Has uh, it's, It delights me no end. I just can't. I don't even have a CD player in my, in my living room. I've got a record player and an amp and two speakers. No, that's it. The, 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 all the CDs that I've bought over the past 20 years are in a box in the attic because yeah. I can get everything I want now on, on vinyl. It's beautiful. <clears throat> Was it mad as well? Because obviously, um, without being rude, you're old enough to remember that like that arc, yeah. which was vinyl yeah. CD replaces it, you know, because it was like vinyl and cassette tapes. And then, yeah. um, I, well, I, I bought, and then now we're back. I but it's a me it's it is amazing to me you're absolutely right Martin. but this is the it, it's it's the corruption of the industry what they're trying to do is they've got the copyright and to a catalog of work so they're just trying to invent formats to get you to buy the same thing that they've already made so it's like trying to ban the same apple five times and literally for me it, it I, I what broke me was um I bought the Beatles live in the Hollywood Bowl on cassette tape five times literally five times it, <laughs> it broke it kept breaking and and it's not the best beatles album by a long way but it's a lovely raw you know it's a it's a raw experience and i love that um and i said i'm not doing this and then cd came along they were supposed to be indestructible and of course they were not and i said no vinyl's the only way to go and it, it's a different listening experience you know but yeah you're right i have I've listened, I've watched it come right around full circle and I'm de- I'm absolutely delighted. I'm absolutely delighted. And all the little pressing plants are opening up again. All the equipment that was in danger, the engineers that were needed to keep those pressing plants ticking over, were all dying off, literally. Like, like of old age. That knowledge was going to be, a, was gone forever. Once they, once they were gone, it was gone. That knowledge was gone. And 
the vinyl resurgence has happened just in the nick of time that those guys can pass that information on uh, like most things though <clears throat> it's um one of the things i noticed with the vinyl was i think it's a brilliant platform for smaller bands to be able to sell a physical copy because you, you as you say you can put your stuff on some people like oh, i listen to you on spotify all the time and you're like mm. yeah but unless you actually ever come to see us live i'm making no cash off and i appreciate i really appreciate you doing that but that's what i try and do which which comes from the, the punk rock yeah. model of i try and buy physical media by bands i buy my fucking t-shirts from my yeah. bands <laughs> yeah you know that kind of thing so it's um i want to do that because that's that's the only way to support your bands there is no there's no big record labels anymore. There's no bands getting driven around fucking limos. That just doesn't exist. So yeah. for the vinyl to come around, I think it's brilliant to get those bands up and running. And then the major labels that do still exist are back cataloging vinyl and fucking price gouging now. Because oh, bands are like, oh, I had that in CD. I'm like, I bought that in CD for a tenner. And now you're telling me if I want the vinyl, it's £30 because... Oh, it's a yeah. double gatefold. I don't give a bollocks. It's the fucking same album. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But this is, yeah. this is this again. I mean, we'll, we'll we'll get into this a bit later on. But you know, this is the, this is one of the problems with capitalism. You know, the the the, the one of the things the capitalists claim is that they're that they're continually inventing new things. And you know, I said, well, explain how can I can go into the supermarket and there's an aisle and there's literally one thing, but sixty different versions of it. It's the same thing. It's nobody's invented yeah. shit. They just repack. That's exactly what they're doing with records. Right. Let's the vinyl resurgence has happened. This is awesome. Right. We're going to go through our entire back catalog and we're going to sell it in Tesco's. They're not even going to say, right, we're going to sell it in the, in the Indies because the HMVs and the Virgin Record Mega Stores are obviously models that don't work. So we're and yeah. the little local independent record shop is a model that works. And we will have, we, we will be able to do this forever if we just, you know, stop being so fucking greedy. But it's beyond them. Sorry, we bit of a rant there. But here, listen, um, Annie, I'm I'm here for the rants. I, I, I can't right, believe okay. it's taking it this long. I can't I believe it's taking this long to fire one out there. I know, I know, it's just, uh, I know, I know, it's just, I'm beyond. I'm, 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 So there you go, that's part one with Darren Matthews. Head over to part two, which is uploaded now also. So if you've got this, you should be able to get part two. And you'll get to hear Darren talking about East Belfast GAA, uh, hurling and the challenges that they had setting that club up, of which there were many, but they're dealing with it so so, um, so brilliantly. So there you go, head over to part two. He's still here. Why are you still here? Go to part two. Go!